The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We are continuing our study of 1 Thessalonians this morning. Yeah, we're back in Thessalonians again. I don't know for how long, but something comes up, we'll take a break and come back again. But uh, I want to thank you for joining us. Now, let me remind you that from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, all the way through 5.11, the context is about the second coming of Christ, the parousia. And the parousia involves three synchronous events. We saw two of them in chapter 4, the resurrection of the dead and the parousia. What else happens at this time? you got the resurrection, the coming of Christ. What's the third event? The judgment. Judgment of unbelievers. At Christ's coming, He not only raised His own people from the dead, but He judged His enemies. Now, in our last study, we looked at the first two verses of chapter 5, and we talked about the day of the Lord. Paul says, now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, we have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So Paul said, you don't have any need to have anything additional written to you. Now this comment, with what is said in the next verse, where he says, you yourselves are fully aware, shows us that he had taught them, the Thessalonians, He was only with them for a very short time, but he had taught them carefully and thoroughly about end-time events, including the day of the Lord, which ushers in God's judgment. So we talked about the day of the Lord, like I said, in our last study. We want to continue on that. This phrase is only used four times in the New Testament. It's used in Acts 2.20, where they're quoting from Joel. It's used here in 2 Thessalonians, and also in 2 Thessalonians 2.2, and in 2 Peter 3.10. Now, we spent most of our time in this last study in 2 Peter 3.10, because that text gives us the most information on the day of the Lord. We saw in our last study, the day of the Lord is an event that happens between the two ages. It happened between this age, this age of the Bible, not this age we're living in, this age of the Bible and the age to come, which is the age we're living in. Zechariah 14 teaches us that the day of the Lord and the destruction of Jerusalem were connected. So the destruction of Jerusalem, which was the day of the Lord, marked the end of one age, the Jewish age, the Old Covenant age, and it marked the beginning of a new age, the New Testament age, the Christian age of the New Covenant. To put it simply, the day of the Lord is a time of judgment on Israel. It is the end of the Old Covenant age. Now, the various references to the day of the Lord throughout the Tanakh refer to various nations that God was going to judge. And He'd usually tell us, you know, an oracle against Babylon or an oracle against so-and-so. He would tell them, okay, here's the judgment. And the day of the Lord was a day of judgment that came upon them. But all references, so it's various nations throughout the Tanakh, but all references in the New Testament that the day of, are for the day of the Lord that came upon Israel. And that happened in AD 70 when the nation was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The city was destroyed. So the phrase, the day of the Lord, in 1 Thessalonians 5, refers to God's judgment 
on the apostate Jewish nation at the end of the age when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman armies. This was the end of the Old Covenant, and it was the consummation of the New. Now, before we move on in the text, I want to spend some more time today talking about the Day of the Lord. I was planning on moving on today, and I was planning on dealing with verses 3 through 6 until I read what John MacArthur says about the Day of the Lord. And it just kind of stopped me in my tracks, and I said, okay, i gotta, you know, I got to deal with this. Now, let me just say, I'm not trying to pick on John, okay? He's easy to pick on, but I'm not trying to do that, okay? I use him because he's a contemporary teacher with a very large ministry and a big influence. And often what he teaches is way off track. He's misleading many believers. Now, in his teaching on 1 Thessalonians 5, MacArthur says this, in Malachi 4.5, don't turn to it. This is a transcript from his speaking message. Of course, he wouldn't write this, I hope. Don't turn to it. But in Malachi 4.5, Malachi says that before the day of the Lord can come, an Elijah-like forerunner. Does Malachi say anything about an Elijah-like forerunner? No, it just said Elijah will come. Nothing about Elijah like in a forerunner must come. First, like John the Baptist came before the coming of Christ, a forerunner. <laughs> Malachi 4 5 says the day of the Lord cannot occur until this Elijah like, this prophetic person, this sort of John the Baptist type, <laughs> comes to announce the coming of the Messiah. So God is actually going to send a forerunner before the day of the Lord. Yes, He is going to do that to announce His coming, Malachi 4.5. So if the forerunner isn't here yet making that announcement, then the day of the Lord isn't near yet. Can you even believe that? I mean, you know, <laughs> it is, when I read this, I'm like, it's hard for me to believe that John said this. Okay? But this is a direct quote, all right? He knows Scripture better than this. I think that his futuristic paradigm blinds him to some simple truths of Scripture. He is waiting for the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy that was fulfilled 2,000 years ago. Yeah, he's going to be waiting a while. Now, we just looked at this prophecy of Malachi last week. And I was using it last week to show how the New Testament interprets the Tanakh. Well, we're going to go a little deeper and look at some of these scriptures again. And I want to show you that John the Baptist was clearly the fulfillment of the Malachi prophecy. All right? And it's so clear, like I said, I don't know how John misses it. Well, but to do this, I want to also look at uh, Matthew chapter 3. And see what Matthew has to say about this, because he has some things to add here. Now... The first two chapters of Matthew's Gospel deal with events surrounding the birth of Yeshua, who is the Christ. Chapter 1 shows that Christ is of the lineage of David. You know, when you start out reading Matthew, begot, 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 if you're into King James, and you're like shaking your head. But he's trying to show the lineage. He is an heir to the Davidic throne, and he's laying that out. Then in chapter 2, he presents the worship accorded to him by the wise men as they honor, as they give glory to one who is fit to rule. 
Now, as we come to the events of Matthew 3, Yeshua is about 30 years of age at this time. And Matthew now wants to present to us the person who has the responsibility to introduce Yeshua as Messiah to the nation Israel. After all, Yeshua is the king. He's the Messiah. As such, it is fitting that we have someone come and announce him and prepare the way. Without any background, we have the greatest of all prophets introduced to us in Matthew 3.1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So John the Baptist comes on the scene as a prophet of Yahweh after 400 years of silence. No prophets, no writings, nothing's happening 400 years. Let me give you a little background here so you can understand the significance of John's appearance in relation to the day of the Lord. The Tanakh closes with the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi is one long and terrible impeachment of the nation Israel. Okay? Malachi 1.1, the oracle of the word of Yahweh to Israel by Malachi. All right, that should be clear, right? That's who he's talking to. The word oracle here is the Hebrew word Massah, and it means an utterance chiefly of doom. So here, Malachi is pronouncing doom on the nation Israel. Not on the world, not on Babylon, not on anybody else, on Israel. He is the prophet of doom. Coming judgment to Israel is the burden of the word of Yahweh to Israel by Malachi. Look what he says in Malachi 3.5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says Yahweh of hosts. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day of the Lord is coming, it shall set them ablaze, says Yahweh of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Now this is not a vague, meaningless threat, is evident from the direct and definite terms in which it is announced. Everything points to an approaching crisis in the history of the nation when God would inflict judgment upon His rebellious people. The day here was coming, the day, he said, will be burning like an oven. And this period is more precisely defined as the great and terrible day of the Lord in Malachi 4.5. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet. Do you see anything about an Elijah-like person? No, he's just going to send Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now, I don't like the ESV's translation here. What does the word awesome mean to you? Yeah, great, fantastic. You know, it's awesome. We say, well, that's awesome. That's not a good translation, especially today, all right? This is the Hebrew word, yare. And yare means fear, frighten, make afraid, dread fear. Terrible is a good way to translate this. And that's, I believe, how the New American translated it. Terrible day of the Lord. That this day refers to a certain period and a specific event is clear. Yeshua tells us that the predicted Elijah that was to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord was in fact 
John the Baptist. Matthew eleven thirteen through 14 For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah, who was to come. That's the word of the Lord, okay? So I guess it's, he says, if you will accept it, MacArthur hasn't accepted it, okay? This text enables us to determine the time of the event referred to as the great and terrible day of the Lord. It must be in the time period of John the Baptist. It seems clear that the allusion is to the judgment of the Jewish nation in AD 70 when their city and their temple were destroyed and the entire fabric of Judaism was dissolved. But MacArthur says this sort of John the Baptist type comes to announce the coming of Messiah. So MacArthur doesn't see John the Baptist as fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi, but is looking for some future John the Baptist type. Now Malachi represents John as the precursor of the coming judge. Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. Now, he says, Yahweh who you seek will suddenly come to his temple. This is a coming judgment. And that's clear, I think, from the following words. He says, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For it's like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. This is not talking about Christ's first coming, as MacArthur claims, but His second coming. This is a distinct allusion to this passage in Revelation 6, 15-17. Revelation says, Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and every slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us! And hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the, great, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Now, people go to Revelation as looking for some future event. When the simple thing is just stop and ask yourself, who's this written to? Who's it written to? It's written to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Seven literal, physical churches that existed in Asia Minor at the time. He's writing to those churches and he tells them the things which must shortly come to pass. He ends the book with five times saying, I come quickly, I'm coming soon, I'm coming shortly. So it should be clear that he is coming in Malachi 3.1 is the same as the great and terrible day of the Lord in chapter 4 or 5 of Malachi. And they both are referring to the great day of their wrath in Revelation 6.17. We can see from this that the prophet Malachi speaks not of the first coming of the Lord, but of the second. And the second coming is to be in the time period of John the Baptist. Now that Malachi is speaking of Christ's second coming is further proved, I think, by the significant fact that in chapter 3-1, the Lord is represented as suddenly coming to His temple, which according to verse 2, is an occasion of terror and dismay. Who can stand when He appears? This expression speaks of the second coming in judgment. 
The temple was the center of the nation's life, the visible symbol of the covenant between Yahweh and His people. It was the spot where judgment must begin, and which was to be overtaken by sudden destruction. So the sudden coming of the Lord to His temple, the dismay attending the day of His coming, His coming as a refiner's fire, as His coming is said to be near to them in judgment, the day coming that shall burn as a furnace, burning up the wicked root and branch, and the appearing of John the Baptist, the second Elijah, previously, previous to the arrival of the great and terrible day of the Lord. That makes it certain, I think, that Malachi here foretells the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 when Christ returned in judgment upon the nation Israel using the Roman army as his instrument of judgment. Now, we need to understand that Malachi's prophecy has a distinct and specific reference to the land of Israel. We already talked about that. It's written to Israel. And the message of the prophet is to Israel. The sins which are condemned are the sins of Israel. The coming of the Lord to His temple is the temple in Israel. The land threatened with the curse is the land of Israel. All this points to a specific, local, and national catastrophe. And history records the fulfillment of this prophecy in exact correspondence to time, place, and circumstance in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And there is a lot written by historians on AD 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem and what happened there. Now, the four centuries between the conclusion of the Tanakh and the beginning of the New Testament are a blank in Scripture history. Like I said, 400 years of silence. They heard from the prophets, the prophets stopped, and then 400 years and there's nothing. Okay? Do you know what happened during this period of the 400 years? This is when the synagogues and the rabbis were established throughout the land. And they did that because the knowledge of Scripture, they wanted to extend it, they wanted to hang on to it, so they built the synagogues. The great religious schools of the Pharisees and the Sadducees arose, well-meaning, I think, in the beginning, both professing to be expounders and defenders of the law of Moses. Above all, the nation cherished the hope of a coming deliverer. All right, Israel's waiting for this deliverer an offspring of the royal house of David who would be a theocratic king, the liberator of Israel from Gentile domination. But for the most part, the popular conception of the coming king was earthly and fleshly. They wanted a leader, a king, who would deliver them physically from the Romans. They weren't really looking for a spiritual king. So there had not in 400 years been any improvement in the moral condition of the people. And between the formalism of the Pharisees and the skepticism of the Sadducees, Judaism had just sunk to its lowest level. There was still a faithful remnant who held on to the truth of the Word of God and believed in the kingdom of God. They looked for a Redeemer to come to Israel. And as the time drew near, there was indications of the return of the prophetic spirit and the premonitions that promised the Deliverer was at hand. The people are, at the time of Christ, there's this great expectation. There's this fervent spirit of the Messiah is going to show up any moment. I mean, they're waiting for that. And then Simeon received assurance that before his death, he would see the Lord's anointed. 
A similar revelation seems to have been made to the aged prophetess Anna. And such revelations, it's reasonable to suppose, must have awakened eager expectations in the hearts of many. Prepared them for the cry which would soon be heard in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A prophet had again risen up in Israel. So you got 400 years of silence, and this prophet shows up. These people are excited about this. Okay? You'll see how excited here in a minute they are. But I mean, they're really... This is something they've been waiting for. And, the, and there's nothing more distinctly affirmed in the New Testament than the identity of John the Baptist as the fulfillment of Elijah of Malachi. And yet, MacArthur seems to miss that. Matthew 17, 10-13. And the disciples asked him, And why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered them, Elijah does come. And he will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. He's already come. Yeshua is saying this. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So they got it. Oh, you're talking about John? John was the forerunner that Malachi talked about? See, the disciples, they knew the prophecy about Elijah. Forget about today, you know, okay? We, we got this concept of here's how people function today. And that day they knew the Bible. They knew the Tanakh. They memorized the Tanakh. They knew these scriptures. So that when they talking about this prophecy, they didn't have to say, Malachi, what is that? You know, they knew what Malachi had to say. Now, apparently they thought this was going to be physically fulfilled. It was actually fulfilled, but it wasn't physically fulfilled. John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, speaking to Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth about John, the angel says this, He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, John the Baptist, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. That's a quote from Malachi. Okay, That's what the forerunner is supposed to do, and here's what John is doing. Doesn't seem complicated. And the disobedient to wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So the Jews expected the reappearance of the literal Elijah, and John replies to that mistaken notion because they even asked him, they said to him, they asked John, What then? Are you Elijah? Because we know Elijah's supposed to come. You must be him. And he said, I'm not. So they're like, What's going on here? What does he mean you're not? He's not Elijah, but he is the fulfillment of that prophecy. And the Lord makes that really clear. And Yeshua is telling them, if you want to understand the second coming of Elijah, you've got to look at the spiritual. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, John is Elijah. So we see that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the prophecy of the coming of Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So let's look at what John had to say about this. Matthew 3.1 In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Alright. The wilderness of Judea indicates the rolling badlands between the hill country of Judea and the west and the Dead Sea 
in the lower Jordan to the east. It's stretching northward about the point of where the Jabbok flows into the Jordan. This is a desolate expanse of barren, kind of chalky soil covered with pebbles and broken stones and rocks. I mean, it might be like, you know, NASA tells us this is what the moon looks like. That would be a picture. Okay, it's just the desolate, the fake pictures of the moon. It would, you know, it would be a desolate, terrible place, okay? Now, interestingly, John shows up, and you think, okay, he goes right to Jerusalem, goes into the heart of the city, goes into the temple, and starts preaching. He doesn't do any of that. He goes to the wilderness. I don't know, he must not have had a course on church planning that's not where you go okay you go into the heart you go where there's people but he goes to the wilderness and something crazy really happened the people flocked to him in the wilderness his ministry of preaching indicates he was a herald he's one who's giving a message to proclaim or announce john was given the ministry of announcing the coming of the presence of yeshua who was the christ And he comes preaching with the proclamation. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John told him that the reason it was so crucial for them to repent was the kingdom of heaven was at hand. This is an expression meaning that it's drawing near. The same expression is used later in the Gospels as Yeshua was drawing near to Jerusalem. It indicates that something is on the verge of coming. It's close. So John is telling them they need to repent because the kingdom is at hand. A kingdom which will be set up by Messiah. Now the Jews were all familiar with this from the Tanakh. They knew that the first thing that would occur in the kingdom would be judgment of those who have not repented. They understood that. Before the kingdom set up, there has to be judgment. They were so familiar with those facts that John didn't even go into any detail from the Tanakh. They knew the kingdom would be set up by the Messiah, who would begin by judging the rebels in the nation and excluding them from the kingdom. Matthew describes the appearance of John, and even his dress. It's crazy how people miss this, but they go to great deals to lay this out. Look at what Matthew says here in chapter 3, verse 4. John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. What's that about? What's he doing here when he says that? He's identifying him with Elijah. And the people, again, of the day, they're, what, John? Well, that's identified with Elijah. Elijah's ministry to Isaiah is recorded in 2 Kings 1. And the king falls ill from an injury. And so the king decides to go to the false prophets and find out what's going to happen to him. Really, you know, you wonder what's wrong with these people. You know, God is their God, and yet, let's go ask the false gods what happened. But Elijah the prophet intercepts the message, and it says, But the angel of Yahweh said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baal Zebub, the god of Ekron? Now, therefore, thus says Yahweh, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. So he shows up. You guys are going to see the false gods. Let me tell you something. Go back and tell him he's going to die. Well, after Isaiah was told that he would die, the king asked for, well, who was this that told you this? 
What, what did this guy look like? And they answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. And look at Matthew 3, 4. John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. You see what he's doing? He's identifying John the Baptist as Elijah. So when Matthew describes this, they identifies him with the prophet. This is Elijah. Now, after describing John's clothing and his diet, in verse 4, Matthew proceeds to describe the response the people had to his message. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and the region about the Jordan were going out to him. We have no clue what's going on here when you just read this text without some background. In order to understand the significance of what's happening here, you've got to picture this tremendous scene. And commentators estimate that there could have been between 200,000 to 500,000 people that participated in John's ministry in this way. Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. Remember, he's in the wilderness, okay? He's in the wilderness. He's not describing the appearance of half a dozen people who followed him. Listen, people, this is not like a Biden rally, okay? (laughs) Where you got 10 people coming out to John. This is like a Trump rally where the whole city is coming out to hear what this guy's got to say. They are excited. This prophet came on the scene in such a striking way that the Spirit of God had prepared the people's hearts. The whole nation recognized John as a prophet. And the leaders even feared him after his death because of the people's high regard for him as a prophet. Now, the trip from Jerusalem to the Jordan River was about 20 miles. These are the people coming out to hear him. 20 miles. They didn't bring a car. They walked, okay, or rode a mule or something. 20 miles from Jerusalem to the Jordan. It was a 4,000-foot drop. So imagine a 20-mile hike that drops 4,000 feet down to the river. As hard as that was, you got to go back up, okay? Think of that. They're walking 20 miles and more. Why? To hear a man preach. <laughs> This has got to be unusual, people. 20 miles they're walking to hear a man. This is the fervency. This is the expectancy going on in this day. In Matthew 3, 7, John begins to confront the religious leaders of the day. (laughs) The The two groups of leaders in Israel, known as the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and this is the first appearance of them in Matthew's Gospel, where they're seen as religious hypocrites. Okay, Matthew writes, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Again, more like a Trump rally, right? (laughs) I mean, just calling it out, you know? So here's John dressed as a prophet with the message of a prophet. He came with the same approach the prophets did. He wasn't buttering up people. He wasn't tickling their ears. He was blasting them. Okay, he was attacking them. Brood of vipers. Okay, viper is a poisonous snake. Now, the interesting thing about these vipers is that they look like a stick or a twig in the desert, just laying there. And without warning, you get too near, they'll strike out and bite you with their venom and kill you. John told the religious leaders they were just like vipers. They're deceptive. They look harmless. They got all the religious garb on. 
but they're really very deadly. Such charges from John were tremendously offensive for the Pharisees and the Sadducees who prided themselves on being so far above the common people. Here's this prophet shows up and he's just attacking the religious leaders. And the people are flocking out there. Speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees, John said, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now the words to come here are the Greek word mellow. And the Greek verb mellow means, in the infinitive, to be about to, to be on the point of. So John is saying to his first century audience, Who warned you to flee from the wrath that is about to come? Now, the wrath that John was talking about was the destruction of Jerusalem. It's still 40 years away. It's about to come. Well, they've been waiting for 400 years, so 40 years is a small period of time. Now, when I think of 40 years, someone says, well, it's about to come. I would think, not 40 years. Okay, I'm thinking next week, tomorrow. Okay, let's speed this thing up. All right, but no, he's talking about something 40, but he said the wrath is coming. Now things are started, basically, is what he's telling him. He's trying to teach them that the physical relationships were inadequate. And John put his finger right on the problem when he says, Do not presume to say in yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. The Jews have been taught and had believed that every physical descendant of Abraham was going into the kingdom. That's all they needed. They just had to be of the lineage of Abraham and they were set. Now, we know the New Testament teaches very differently than that. John informed them that being a physical descendant of Abraham has nothing to do with getting in the kingdom of God. God, he said, could take stones and turn them into descendants of Abraham if he wanted to. So John was telling them they had no more chance than stones of getting in just because of their relationship with Abraham. And what I want you to see this morning is that the heart of John's message was the theme of coming judgment. John announced in verse 2, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, meaning it's near. The kingdom of heaven would be ushered in in a time of judgment. And John speaks of this judgment in verse 10 when he says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Okay, people, he's not talking about hell here, okay? Every time we see fire, we think, oh, it's talking about, this is talking about judgment. Fire is a symbol of judgment in Scripture. In order for the kingdom to be consummated, there has to be a time of judgment. The axe is there at the root, ready to cut down the tree that's not bearing fruit. And John places an emphasis on fire again in verses 11 and 12. And in those verses, there's a reference to coming destruction. Now, several Old Covenant prophets had predicted judgment preceding the glory of the kingdom. And that is why John is warning that the axe is at the root of the tree. Because the teaching of the prophets, the Jews were well aware that the kingdom would be ushered in by judgment. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 4, 4 and 5, When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst in a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning... Okay, here's, this is judgment, judgment, burning. Then Yahweh will create, then, after that, Yahweh will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over the assemblies a cloud by day and a smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will appear a canopy. So the order 
is first judgment and then glory. Now, Ezekiel wrote about bringing the nation back and establishing them in the kingdom in Ezekiel 34, 16. He says, I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with justice. Now, let me ask you a question. Who's speaking here? How do you know? Well, let's go back a verse. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord Yahweh. Okay, so we got that. Yahweh speaking, right? And he says, I will seek the lost. Well, what's interesting about that is Yeshua said in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So Yahweh says in Ezekiel 34, I will seek the lost. Then Yeshua comes along and says, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. And by using this phrase, knowing again the people knew Scripture, Yeshua is claiming to be Yahweh in the flesh. The Son of Man's going to, well, God, Yahweh said He would do that. You're right. And I'm Yahweh in the flesh, here to do that. You know, whenever people say they don't believe in the deity of Christ, I realize two things. They don't know God and they don't know the Bible. Okay? The teaching of the Lord's deity is fundamental and it is everywhere in Scripture. If you know Scripture, if you know these things like this when He quotes this, if you're more familiar with it, People are always attacking the deity of Christ. You destroy the deity of Christ. You destroy the Trinity. Yeshua said in John 8, 24, Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. What does he mean, I am? I am what? I am he, it says. He's not in the text. Unless you believe that I am, he's connecting himself with Yahweh, the I am, I am of Exodus chapter 3. Unless you believe that I am, Because if you don't believe He's God, guess what? Your sins have not been atoned for. He says, the fat and the strong I will destroy. He just, it's His judgment. I'm going to destroy those who are just making themselves fat off the land and abusing the people. All right, back to Ezekiel 34. The fat and the strong, they've been feeding on the weak. So they're going to face the judgment of God. That's a key element. Now, Malachi, the last prophet in Israel until the time of John the Baptist, prophesied of judgment and burning. In Malachi 4, 1 and 2, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and the evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming and shall set them ablaze, says Yahweh of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Now, in these passages, it's hard to miss the emphasis, again, on judgment. Look at 4, 1 and 2. For, but for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Now the Jews of John's day, again, they knew these prophecies of the Tanakh. They understood that before the kingdom could be consummated, God's judgment would fall on unbelievers who would be rooted out of the kingdom as Messiah establishes his rule and reign. Matthew 3.11, I baptize you with water for repentance. That was a baptism of repentance that John was doing. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. He's talking about Christ. 
whose sandals I'm not worried to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, let me draw your attention to something that I think is very, very important here. The baptism of holy, the Holy Spirit and fire is talking about not one thing. People say, well, this is Pentecost. They got baptized by the Holy Spirit and they had little things of fire on their head. That's not what he's talking about here, okay? This is referring to the Christ event. Now, when I say Christ event, it involves first coming and second coming. That's one event. It's the Christ event. He comes, he dies for our sins, he goes away to receive a kingdom, he comes back at at, uh, Passover. Yeah. (laughs) Comes back in the judgment of Jerusalem, okay? So it begins with Pentecost, with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but it ends with fire, and that fire is the destruction of Jerusalem. That's the fire it's talking about here. AD 30 began the Christ event, but it wasn't completed until 40 years later in AD 70. So we have the Holy Spirit, then we got 40 years, then we got judgment of fire. Now, Joel's prophecy, which is talked about in Acts chapter 2, begins at Pentecost. And he's, he's explaining Pentecost. He says, This is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. He didn't say, This is like what Joel said. This is what Joel was talking about. Okay, this is it. This is the event. It's one prophecy. It's one event that encompasses the pouring out of the Spirit and the pouring out of wrath. It's a prophecy of the Christ event. And this Christ event encompasses the cross, Pentecost, the resurrection, the judgment, the parousia. Joel's prophecy covers from Pentecost to the day of the Lord a 40-year period, which equals a generation. And the Lord said, this generation is going to see all these things. Now, this 40-year period, and it's critical you understand this 40-year period, It's called the Christ event. It's also called the transition period because it's a time of transition from the old to the new. It's also called the second exodus because it's an exodus. They're exiting sin and death in this exodus. It's not a physical exodus. It's a spiritual exodus. It's also what the Bible calls the last days. It's the last days of the old covenant. People today say, oh, we're living in the last days. Really? What covenant are we in? Well, we're in the new covenant. Well, the Bible says the new covenant is an everlasting covenant. How would you have last days in an everlasting covenant? Does that work out somehow? The last days began with the ministry of Christ. Hebrews tells us that. He came in the last days. That's when his ministry began. And it ended at AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. Now, the time period is also known as this age in Scripture. We live in what the Bible calls the age to come, which is the new covenant age. And this 40-year period from Pentecost to Holocaust was a time of transition from old to the new. In this transition period, the new covenant had been inaugurated, but not consummated. It began with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. It ended with fiery destruction. That's the Christ event, that 40-year thing. They're connected. The baptism with fire which John mentions in verse 11, is the day of the Lord, judgment, that John elaborates on in verse 12. He says, His winnowing fork is in His hand. He will clear the threshing floor and gather His wheat into the barn, but the chaff He will burn with unquenchable fire. Again, this is the fires of destruction of Jerusalem. So He's going to winnow the grain until all the chaff is gone. And the judgment's going to be thorough 
and it's going to be complete. But he's going to gather the wheat into the barn. And then he's going to burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. So judgment precedes the kingdom. Now, in Matthew 13, Yeshua explains the parable of the wheat and the tares. And this passage is preparatory to the setting up of the kingdom where the angels are going to come and remove the wicked. This is parable to, I mean, parallel to Matthew 24, when the two shall be in the field, it says, one taken and one left. And in that context, the one taken is taken to judgment. It's not a rapture. They're taken away to judgment. Look at Matthew 13, 41 and 42. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of this kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. And that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, nothing to do about hell. This is judgment on Jerusalem. Verse 49 and 50 continue. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels are going to come. They're going to separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. There we go again. Into that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When does Yeshua say the angels are going to come forth and separate the wicked from among the just and cast them in the furnace? He says it happens at the end of the age. Now, if you've got a King James Bible, it says the end of the world. Bad translation. The word here is I own in the Greek. It's not cosmos. So it's the end of an age. It's not the end of the world. The Jewish age. So the King James really throws people for a loop there because they're waiting for the whole world to be destroyed. It's talking about Jerusalem, though. To the Jews... Time is divided into two great periods. You have the Mosaic Age and you have the Messianic Age. The Messiah was viewed as one who would bring in a new world. And the period of the Messiah was therefore correctly characterized by the synagogue as the world to come. All through the New Testament we see these two ages in contrast. This age and the one to come. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. There's your two ages. All through the New Testament we see that. So the age that was to end was the Jewish age. It would end with the destruction of the Jewish temple and the city of Jerusalem. The end of the age did not happen at the cross. It did not happen at Pentecost, but happened at the destruction of Jerusalem. The world was not going to end, but the age of Judaism was. And the disciples knew that the fall of the temple and the destruction of the city meant the end of the Old Covenant age. They knew that it meant the inauguration of a new age, because they asked that in Matthew 24. When will these happen? J. Stuart Russell writes this. These warnings of John the Baptist are not the vague and indefinite exhortations to repentance addressed to men in all ages. It's so important, okay? Context here. Who is he talking to? Which they are sometimes assumed to be. They're urgent, burning words having a specific and present bearing upon the then existing generation, the living men to whom he brought the message of God. Now, that's a weird concept, okay? He's saying this message is directed and means to the people it's talking to. It does not, you know, he's not, I'm talking to people 2,000 years ago, but I'm just telling you this, so you'll know. No, it's for them. That's why he's talking to them. The Jewish nation was now upon its last trial. 
the second Elijah had come as the precursor of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. If they rejected his warning, the doom predicted by Malachi would surely speedily follow. I will come and smite the land with a curse. Nothing can be more obvious than that the catastrophe to which John alludes in is particular, national, local, and eminent. And history tells us that within the period of the generation that listened to his warning cry, the wrath came upon them to the uttermost. I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? John speaking to them, the judgment came upon them. It was all about them. John's message is one of judgment, and it was for first century Israel. Messiah the judge is coming. He says, repent. The day of the Lord and the coming of Christ are not in our future, people. They are in our past. MacArthur's looking for a forerunner to come and start predicting and crying out about this. You missed it. Christ returned in AD 70, bringing in judgment the day of the Lord upon the nation, the nation Israel and bringing in the kingdom of God. This seems clear and simple to me. Why do so many people miss this? I think that the problem is our paradigms can blind us from seeing the truth of Scripture. And if you, in your eschatological paradigm, which this is the paradigm of most people, you see the second coming of Christ as the end of the physical world, a cataclysmic, earth-burning, total destruction of life as we know it, then of course you don't believe it came. Okay? Your paradigm's messed up, all right? And where we got that paradigm from is mistranslations like the King James talking about the world instead of the age. Well, you know, because life goes on, of course, you can't believe he returned as he said he would. It just doesn't fit your paradigm. But people, the day of the Lord was a first century judgment on national Israel. It ushered in the kingdom of God, and we live in the kingdom of God now. We're not waiting for it. It's not future to us. It's present. Yahweh dwells with his people, which is the promise of the new covenant. It's an incredible blessing that we have. We're not looking for God to come down and be with us in some future time. It's already ours. We just need to enjoy it. But we can't do that if our paradigm's messed up. The day of the Lord, AD 70 event. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at your word. Lord, I thank you for the clear teaching of Scripture that tells us that John fulfilled the prophecy of Malachi that He truly came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Lord, help us to put the Scriptures into context. Help us to use the, the laws of hermeneutics that we may apply the Scripture properly to the first century and then find application to ourselves. Thank you, Lord, for Your grace to us. Amen. Amen. Questions? Comments? So happy to see David back. Answered prayer. There you go, David. David says thank you. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> oh boy, we're in trouble. Norm got a cell phone.
<laughs> so Norm is texting. He says, hi, David, you've been had. I finally got a cell phone. Well, welcome to the 21st century, Norm. <laughs> I think you'll like it. It's quite, there's some enjoyable things about it, okay? <laughs> he says, I know this is speculation, yeah, but 400 years is a long time. I agree with that, okay? How in the world would you suppose the elect during that time discovered their faith? No prophecy, no indwelling Holy Spirit. Yahweh says he always has a remnant. Thanks. Yeah, Norm, I, I think that 400 years of silence, but again, they had the scriptures. They didn't have anything new. They're waiting, but they had the prophecies. And they either believed God that he was going to send a redeemer, and that belief was faith. They looked forward to the cross like we look back to it. Again, the synagogues arose to try to keep, you know, so they have copies of Scripture, so they could keep the teaching alive, and that was the purpose of that. So I, I don't think there's any doubt that during that 400 years, God had His people. There were plenty of people, when Yeshua showed up, ready for Him, waiting for Him. There was that remnant that was like, this is what we've been waiting for. But yeah, 400 years, that's a long time of silence. But that was God's plan. Um, okay, Daniel 4.26 says, And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you have come to know the God of heaven. By the axe being laid to the root of the tree means it's not coming back. Amen. That is exactly what it means. And I wish, man, I wish people could understand that. People today are looking for Israel, something in Israel. God, they're God's people. God loves Israel. He that touches Israel touches the apple of God's eye. Let me tell you something about that. And I was thinking about this this week. We talked last week about I.O., the Israel-only doctrine. That's actually true in a sense because only Israel will be saved. But we're Israel. They negate the spiritual aspect. It's like physicality is all important, spiritual is not. We are the Israel of God. And that's right. The axe is laid to the truth because true the root of the tree because Judaism is done. God's finished with it. That's right. No root, no branch, done, gone. Those people over there that say they're Jews, they are not. They're not Jews. Okay? And there's a lot of stuff in the news lately about the, the red heifer. They got red heifers and they're shipping them over there. Oh, they're trying to put things back together. Okay, and they're saying very soon they'll be ready to offer. And I'm like, well, you got to get rid of the Rome, the Dome of the Rock. Okay, the Muslim mosque that's over there. First of all, you got to take that down. They won't bother you when you do, right? Then you have to build the temple, and then you have to have the temple destroyed. So yeah, it's happening real soon. Okay. <laughs> People, red, we don't need red heifers because we have no priesthood. We have no priesthood, we have no sacrifice, we have no need for red heifers. So, yes, amen, thank you. That, the, the, tree, the tree is down and it is never coming back. Absolutely. And that's the whole purpose of Nebuchadnezzar. You know, he cut the tree down. He was cut down, but when he lifted his eyes to heaven and recognized the Lord God rules over the kingdom of men, God restored his sanity, stopped acting like an animal, and got back to taking over the but that tree was preserved. 
I told you before, I got a tree in my backyard. I cut it down every so many years, and it just grows right back. You know, I do that on purpose. I like the small tree. It keeps wanting to get big. I keep it small, all right? Uh, someone asks, is the transition period from 30 to 70 also the millennium? I, be- I believe it is, absolutely. I believe that is the millennium. That is the time. The Bible talks about in Revelation 20, the thousand years. It's not really thousand. If you've got questions about that, go to Bob Crookshank's message on our site. He goes into great detail on numerology and stuff like that. All right, I, it says, David, might you please consider requesting a prayer from your congregation today presented anonymously? I please offer prayers for family members bravely facing choices and difficult life changes. Please provide our beloved safe travel, grant safe harbor, and allow continued learning and sharing. I pray talk to God all the time. I clearly don't know how to write a prayer, but that's the just. Thank you kindly. I I mean, I think we should always be in prayer for one another. God tells us to pray continually. Pray, but you know, I just have a problem with, you know, an unspoken request. How do I pray for what? What am I praying for? I don't know how to pray, um, but I think we should always be in prayer for each other, lifting each other up. That's part of our responsibility. Someone asks, what about the millennium? What is that all about? Again, Bob Crookshank's message on the site, on the millennium. That'll answer your questions. It'll give you great insight into things. It might make you mad, okay? Yeah, it might raise some questions because, you know, but, but let me tell you, it's a good message. Uh, someone says, good morning, Dave. We're praying for Gary and family. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's what the body's all about. It's interesting that after you read 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 through 18, and then read 1 Thessalonians 5, it's clear to see when it all would take place. At the resurrection in 4, 16 through 18 was at the day of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5, I was saying last week, that the words remain in 1 Thessalonians 5 through 17 says in the Greek to be left to sur- survive. My point is that this proves it's not a rapture. Okay? He said that to say no rapture. Well, I would agree with you there. By rapture, you mean being sucked up into the sky. Someone says, I love the fact that Paul is warning them the end had not yet come. Why even write the letter? if it means that the end of the world. Paul would take a look out your window, LOL. Yeah, I mean, you know, and that, we'll get into that in Second Thessalonians, but there was people receiving letters or hearing word that it already happened. And if it was physical, Paul would just say, no, dummy, look out the window, we're still here. But since it's not physical, then it helps you understand that. Uh, Dana from California says, yes, great to see David back. Glad to hear you all on the men. Blessings. All right. Thank you, Dana.
Great message, but you lost me when you used the unscriptural Roman Catholic word Trinity. Sorry about that. It's not, it's not a Roman Catholic word. You know, if there's no Trinity, then Christ is not God. And if Christ is not God, Romans, I mean, John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am. Unless you believe that Christ is God. And the proof is overwhelming if you're familiar with Scripture. Go to John 1, 1, 1, 1 and 2. Read that. You know, John 1, 14. He dwelt among us. God became man. That is fundamental. I know the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Okay, yes, I know that. Okay, but the teaching is plain. Listen, they understood this in the Tanakh. The Jews understood several powers in heaven. They knew that wasn't just one God. They knew there was a plurality of gods. They even mentioned Trinity. All that changed after the Lord came because they said, oh, we can't have people thinking that Yeshua is one of the gods, so we've got to change all those doctrines that we held to. This is not, and listen, don't even waste your time talking to me about it. This is a hill I will die on, okay? My flag is planted. Yeshua is God. If you don't believe that, I'm sorry for you, okay? I'm sorry for you, but you don't know your Bible very well at all. You might think you do. You might think the Roman Catholics invented the Trinity. They didn't invent anything, okay? This is back. The Jews understood this a long time ago, and it's plain in the writings, Sorry to get worked up, but I'll tell you, I just get so frustrated with people who are like, oh, he's not God. Well, then you're dead in your sins. So a man just came along and died for you. A man who was a sinner. Yeah, it's just... Yeah, there's, again, John 1.1, I did several messages on John 1.1 talking about this. There's messages all over on... on deity, the deity of Christ. Like I said, one of the things we talked about today, Christ says, I came to seek and save. Well, that's what Yahweh said. Why does Yahweh say that? Okay, and now I'm saying it. Are you Yahweh? Yeah, in the flesh. Okay, uh, Jeff just says there's a thing on YouTube, did, a playlist for, did Jesus claim to be God? He certainly did. Okay. Someone asked, do you believe the two witnesses in Revelation 11 to be John the Immerser and Christ? I don't have a clue who the two witnesses are. I would say the law and the prophets, but I don't know. I've never studied in-depth Revelation. And see, that's kind of my stand and my safeguard. If I haven't studied it, I'm not going to give you an opinion because I don't, I mean, I have one, but (laughs) it's not worth anything, okay? So I don't know who the two witnesses were. You know, and frankly, I know they came 2,000 years ago. That's what I know about the two witnesses. So I'm not really, you know, people get hung up on the little things that, to me anyway, I mean, believe me, you know, I think eschatology is important, but, you know, you want to get in all the details here? I don't know. It happened 2,000 years ago. Now, if you're a futurist, you can make up all kinds of stuff because no one can prove it, right? Because there's, well, it's future. How do you know? All you got to do is prove it's not future, and I think we can do that. Do you think there's significance in the number 400 years Without a prophet, 40 times 10. Yeah, I think there's, I think all the numbers in Scripture have significance, especially a number like that, because 40 is a very significant number, and we just got 10 times 40. Yes, I do think it's significant. Do I understand the significance of it? No. (laughs) But I do think it's significant.
Um, Bob Crookshank, the blue-collar scholar, is weighing in here. <laughs> he says the Jews in the, Old Testament, in the Old Testament definitely understood that there were two powers in heaven. Yes, they definitely did. And I would go even further, and I think they understood there were three powers in heaven. I think there's evidence for that also. Okay, they understood this. They didn't have it all figured out, but they knew. Okay, so this idea of the Trinity is something, you know, the Catholics made up. It's not purgatory. Right. Again, yeah. Yeah, okay. Let's wrap this up. <clears throat> Listen, like I said, somebody who wants to argue about the Trinity is writing back. You Don't waste your time. Okay, really. I'm not trying to be rude, but don't waste your time. This is a hill I'll die on. If you're a non-Trinitarian, go somewhere else. There's Unitarian churches out there. There's plenty of places you can go and hear that kind of nonsense and believe it. But you go to John 8.24 and you tell me what that means, okay? Why did Yeshua say that? If you don't believe that I am... Understand who the I am is. And again, I can show you a million places throughout the Scripture. This is important, people, because if you do away the Trinity, you do away the deity of Christ. You do that, you're dead in your sins, okay? No matter what you say, go somewhere else, please. We don't have time for that nonsense here.